Thanks, Deirdre. So uh, we get together every week as a ministry team to discuss the sermon and the passage. And, and this week I came with an outline and we talked about it. And then as I was meditating on my bike ride yesterday, I completely changed my entire outline based upon the input. So um, I'm excited about what we've got here. So basically, uh, you know, the passage is specifically written to youth. That is the audience he is writing to on this passage. But as we talked about um, the sermon as a ministry team, we really thought that there were probably three different audiences here. Um, other, I mean, in addition, well, not three audiences, including the youth. So there's obviously the youth, um, which I'm kind of defining as kind of mid-teens to early 30s, it could be. Okay, mid-teens to early 30s. Um, but you may not necessarily be in your youth if you're in your early 30s, but you might consider yourself as a youth if you're in your early 30s. So it's, it's broad. But then we've got parents of youth or young adults, um, and then there are all of us that at some point we're young adults, okay? And so we're all interpreting, I think, these teachings through a variety of lenses. And so what I want to do tonight is go through the core teaching of the passage and what it is saying to youth. But then I think I want to spend a little bit of time reflecting on um, how each of these various audiences, the youth, um, the people who are parents of, of youth, and then all of us who used to be youth, um, if you're not in the previous one, uh, how, how we should kind of think about it. And so, first of all, the, uh, the essential teaching behind this passage in Ecclesiastes is it's a really simple and clear message. Youth provides, being young provides abundant opportunities for happiness. And so be happy. If you are young, be happy. And he's speaking to young adults. He's not talking to children. If you are a young adult, the world is your oyster in regard to happiness. That's, that's his perspective. That's the author's perspective. That's Solomon's perspective. And so because there are so many opportunities for you as a young adult to be happy, you should be happy. Delight in your youth. Now, before I jump in, uh, what do we mean by happy? I think it's good to occasionally define this. We've kind of been working at it throughout the series, but I wanted to kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive. What does it mean to be happy in this, in this, um, in this passage? And really the word happy is not used in Ecclesiastes. The word is rejoice or find joy in or delight in, but that's the idea of being, of being happy. And so it's a disposition of the soul. First and foremost, it's a disposition of the soul where peace and contentment and satisfaction and gratitude and enjoyment are present. So it's a disposition of the soul that has those characteristics, peace, contentment, satisfaction, gratitude, enjoyment. It's enduring. It's not something that fluctuates with our emotions. Okay, It's a disposition of the soul. The emotions can be a, a, are a part of it, but it's a deeper-seated thing that's enduring. It's possible through the most common aspects of our human experiences, and so that's what we've seen. The author has said, listen, 
if you have um, family, if you have food and drink, if you have a, a, a work that you enjoy, you can be happy. These are, these are common, these are ubiquitous. Almost everyone can experience happiness, according to the author here of Ecclesiastes. Happiness can also be experienced in the midst of suffering and trials. And it can be experienced in conditions where you have little in terms of material possessions or you have a lot. Rich or poor, you can be happy. There is always the potential for it. Solomon doesn't exclude anyone from being happy. If you orient your life to fear the Lord and to please Him. I mean, that is the one condition. If you, are, if you want to be happy, you can be. And lastly, it is a gift. It is a gift from God. It's not something you earn, okay? It's, it's not something that you can plan for. It's, it's something that if you seek to walk in the fear of God and to please Him, it is a gift, Okay, that's an important aspect of it. So it's a disposition of the soul that has all those characteristics. Uh, you know, modern psychologists, um, they, they, call, they have these two different terms. Uh, eudaimonia is a term that they actually got from Aristotle, writing thousands of years ago. And that refers to a deep state of well-being where you feel like your life has meaning and purpose. Okay, so that kind of goes along with Ecclesiastes in contrast to what's called hedonia, where we get our word hedonism or hedonistic, where that's a, a term that defines or describes the fleeting happiness of various pleasures. So basically, it's, it's not the, the giddy, fleeting bursts of happiness that we can have when we're doing something that we like, all right? Happiness from Ecclesiastes is this disposition of the soul where, where purpose and meaning and contentment and satisfaction are present, even in the midst of trials and hardship. And so what the author is saying, Solomon is saying, is that the youth have abundant opportunity for happiness. And so he explains a little bit why this is the case. And those of us that are beyond young adulthood can certainly understand this. The older we get, the more life gets difficult. There are more important decisions to make, more long-term decisions to make. You're, you're making decisions about who you are going to marry. You're making decisions about the work that you're going to do for a lifetime. You're thinking about children. You're thinking about the, the, their development. Things get much more difficult the older you get. So before life gets too difficult, young men and women, enjoy life. Enjoy life. And, and there seems to be this understanding that if you can grasp in your youth the secret to being happy, that's going to give you the ability of moving into adulthood with some capacities and skills that you're going to need when life does get more difficult. If you've learned the secret of being happy before things get hard, when things get hard, you've got some things to hold on to that can sustain you. And so the, the, 
Solomon, the author, the preacher, as he refers to himself, explains a few avenues that young people need to pursue in order to experience this happiness. And there are a few roadblocks or pitfalls or things to avoid on this path to happiness. So I want to spend a little bit of time here on the avenues. What, do you, what should young people pursue in their pursuit of happiness? Well, he says, delight and rejoice in your youth. How do you do that? He says this, and it's, it's one of the, I think, um, well, I'll just say, say what the statement is. He says, follow what your eyes and follow what your heart desires. Whatever you see that you think is going to make you happy, go after it. Whatever you feel like is going to make you happy, go after it. I mean, it's a very... Uh, you, you, I think you could actually find statements in the Bible that would tell you quite the opposite. But there is a, there is a caveat to it. Know that whatever you choose to do, and he doesn't get into any specifics. I mean, it, what we all could feel or what we all could see that would make us happy uh, is, is so varied. He doesn't get into any specifics. It's whatever is in front of you that you want to do, do it. With the one caveat. God is going to judge you for whatever you do. God is going to judge you for whatever you do. So it doesn't have, it's not without its potential consequences. And we all know that there are things that our eyes desire and that our emotions desire that if we do, we're going to be in trouble. Either, either God's discipline in this life, God's judgment in the, in the afterlife, consequences now from legal consequences or relationship consequences or financial consequences. We know there are consequences if we make bad decisions just doing what we want to do. But it does give the young people this, this vision. Hey, as, as long as I don't do anything that's going to get me in trouble, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then he also says this, Remember your creator before the evil days come. Remember your creator. Now, this is the only time the author of Ecclesiastes uses the term creator, and I think it's important. You know, he refers to God with the term God throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and the, the term God, it's not intended to feel distant, but it can often feel distant. It can seem like it's, it's a someone different or set apart, distant from me. He's judging the world. He's trying to figure out how to make my life as miserable as possible because he is going to judge me for whatever I do. Um, and so this, this idea of God can feel distant to us. And so he uses this term creator, which, which really, I think, pulls us into the potential of something much more intimate and personal. So if you think of a creator, okay, you can think, of the, think of an artist. Think of an artist. An artist, when they approach a piece of work, so whether a painter or a drawer or a woodworker or sculptor, whatever, an artist, there's some, they're, they're going to engage some creativity. There's going to be some thoughtfulness. There's going to be a uniqueness to what they do. There's going to be time put into it energy, feeling, 
There's going to be a lot of intentionality in terms of, okay, I'm after something here. You know, I was talking with Alicia this week. We were just talking about some of her art projects as she was finishing up some summer things. So she's, a, she's an art major, studio art major, and so she does a lot of drawings and a lot of paintings. And she said, you know, Dad, you know, they give us an assignment. They tell us that they'd like us to spend, you know, about 25 hours outside of class working on it. And she said, I oftentimes will do 50 you know, and so she's thinking about each thing. And I think that if, if we think about God being an artist and each of us as a unique created being by this master artist, that there's some things that I think can start happening in our minds and in our feelings that th- there, is so, there is a being that cr- has created me and there is no one else like me out of the billions of people that are alive now and out of the billions of people that have ever lived. I am unique. I am special. I am known. You know, when an artist completes their work, and I, I, I dabble, okay, mostly like in woodworking is what I typically do if you look at anything the creative I've done. I used to do a lot of technical drawing when I was going to be an engineer. But if I have spent time building something, you know, I made plans, I figured out the budget, I got my materials, I cut them down, I put them together, glue, nails, screws, bolts, whatever, sanded it, finished it, then presented it as a gift or used for my enjoyment. There is a lot of me that goes into it. And I know, like a few years ago, I made a king-size bed for Anna and I. We finally had a big enough bedroom when we moved into the house we're in now to have one. It's been great, but I built a bed. I can tell you every cool part of that bed that has like a, a special and unique feature in the wood. There's sometimes when the, when the wood, when the tree is growing um, and it, there's, a, there's a branch or a knot, it, it can over time and as the years go on, the, the, the wood can actually look like flowing water. And there are some spots on our bed that are just really cool. And then I also can tell you every, every spot on the bed where there's a mistake, where I didn't take the time I needed to, or I mismeasured, or whatever. An artist knows its creation, and God knows each and every one of us very specifically, okay, and very intimately. God knows us. And from that, from from knowing God as a creator, we get identity. Here's who I am. Here's who I am. And we get meaning, and we get purpose. And as we get to know, it's what he says, remember, but it's also acknowledge. It's also learn. Learn about your creator in your youth. Because it's 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 in our youth where we're transitioning from our families and into our own person. We're going to maybe start our own family someday. But in that transition time, we're, we're not just what our families made us. All right? They significantly contribute to who we are as people and the other social dynamics that we're involved with. But as we emerge into adulthood, we have to become, because we are our own person. And the more that we can connect to God as our creator who has, who has intimately created and fashioned and knows us 
more than we know ourselves. The more we can know our creator, the more we can tap into what God's mystery is for us. There's a, there's a proverb that says it is, it is um, I can't remember that specific verse, but it, it's, it's the, it, God hides things for us to discover. And that is a pleasure and a joy. Things, are, things that are mysterious to us are ultimately pleasures for us to discover and enjoy. And part of the, the, the things that God wants us to discover is ourselves. Who has God made me to be? What are my gifts? What are my potentials? What are my calling? What are my meaning? What are my purpose? Young people want to desperately know who they are. And the more they can know the God who created them, the more that, that they can discover that. And so in that then comes confidence and happiness. Because again, the evil days will come. And if the evil days come and you're still trying to figure out, who am I? What am I called to? What are my gifts? What's the meaning of all? If I'm still asking those questions as life becomes more and more difficult, it's going to be more and more difficult for me to, to figure all those things out and then to enter into adulthood with some clarity and confidence and happiness. So that's, those are the two big things that Solomon says, hey, youth, be happy. Here's how you do it. Acknowledge your creator and anything your eyes and feelings are directing you to, go do it, knowing that you're going to be judged. Okay, so it's pretty wide open, I, th I think. The pitfalls, what, do we, what, what does he say you've got to avoid or put off? Yeah, the, the first one, and I, th I think if you're a young person, this is, yeah. He says you've got to put off anger and irritability. Anger and irritability. He doesn't explain why there's anger, and he doesn't explain how to get rid of the anger. Um, and he assumes that it's there. He assumes that it's there. He assumes that there is some anger in young adults. I think, you know, young people are in, aren't in full control of their lives. They can see a vision. They have a vision out there for adulthood and some of the things that they'd like to do and a sense of freedom, and they, and they are tired of the restrictions that are put upon them by their, by their parents or by other uh, authority figures. And so there's this this longing to be something that they're not quite, and they're still back in childhood a little bit. And so I think a lot of the anger comes from the fact that they're not yet in full control of their lives. You know, from, from my experience, as I was thinking back to my young adulthood, middle school, middle school years, early high school years, a lot of insecurities, you know, and... You know, I was overweight, I was not athletic, I was interested in girls, but they certainly were not interested in me, and I wanted to be and do things and people to think I was great, and that just wasn't me, but by my sophomore year, okay, I'd hit the weight room for two years hard, I was, I was on the football team, I was on the golf team, I was interested in this girl, and she actually... I think was interested in me. So things were starting to go well, 15 years old. And I was, I was pursuing all the things that I thought would make me happy, and they were making me happy. But then my parents came home one day from school, and I said, hey, George, we're going to move to Iowa. And it was all just kind of ripped away. And I was an angry young man. I just dived into heavy metal music, and I spent 
tons of time on motorcycles and four-wheelers just trying to cover up the pain and was isolated in many, many ways. And I was really angry. But that started to change one night when I just started, I, you know, I was listening to my heavy metal music. I think I've told this story before. And I listened to Metallica. They have a song about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And my mom says, hey, that's in the book of Revelation. So I went down and read the book of Revelation one night. And I came away with this, I remember very vividly this idea. Okay, I'm mad at the world. I am not happy. But here I can see that, that Jesus wins. If I, if I align myself with Jesus and who he is and what he's doing, I'm going to come out okay. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. That's exactly what I thought. So in, I was angry. and a lot of reasons to be angry. Things, nothing in my life was, was going my way at all. But Solomon is saying, put aside the anger. And I think we do that by following what he said before. Get to know your creator. And then he says, as a follow-up to that, avoid foolish and harmful actions. Don't do things that are going to bring harm to yourself. So when we're in places of pain and anger, not just as young people, but everybody, but he's talking to young people here, we tend to choose badly to find relief. If we're operating out of a place of anger, we're operating out of a place of being a victim, people are oppressing us, we turn to physical violence, we could turn to substance abuse, we can turn to enslaving relationships, we can turn to risky behaviors. I think, again, I'm probably not saying anything that's new here. And that anger gives us a sense of power, and the power is what we're not feeling. We're not in control of our lives. We would like to be. Things are happening that we're angry at. And that anger gives us a sense of power, and we often then become careless and foolish. And then we justify ourselves because, you know, I'm a victim here. These are common things that young adults face. Solomon saw it, we saw it, we all experience it. And he finishes off the passage, though, with, I, I've been asking myself, from the, just the, in this last season of studying and reading Ecclesiastes, why does he spend so much time in this passage on describing what it's like to be around a dying person and death? He goes into this full description. Here's what, here's what it's like to be around a person that's decaying. And there's some vivid imagery there. And I think what he's wanting to show the youth or what he's wanting to, the youth to think more about is the fact that you may be young now, but eventually you will die. Eventually you will die. And so you don't live forever. So start now in your youth Building a life that can lead to a lifetime of happiness. Because the longer you go without discovering your creator, the longer you go um, residing in anger, the more difficult it's going to be. It's like, you know, we're, it, you know uh, at the beginning of the series, Lawrence mentioned uh, Proverbs and the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness. In the beginning, the path of wisdom is a little more difficult because you've got to suppress all these desires that you have, um, things that would get you in trouble and bring on God's judgment. But at, once you start down the path, it becomes easier. But the path of foolishness is real easy to start 
But the longer you go down, the more difficult it, it is, and the more difficult it is to turn back. Not impossible, but more difficult. And so that's, real, that's Solomon's encouragement here for these, for these people. And I think that it's also important, this, this, this segment that he uses here focusing on death, I think it's also there because he's, he's also communicating that death is the finish line. Death is the finish line. Emerging out of young adulthood isn't the finish line. Getting married and having a family isn't the finish line. Getting a job isn't... Death is the finish line. And so while it's there, I think, to, to strengthen and to warn and to push young adults into becoming more serious about their life earlier, I think it's also there for the reader to show that, listen, there's, there's always a chance for you to pursue and engage happiness as long as you're alive. So I think it's also kind of a message of grace because, you know, oftentimes when we're, when we're reading wisdom literature, it's so easy to feel condemned because it doesn't take you very long reading through Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and then you, you're just like, I am a fool and a scoffer most of my life. That's what it, it, you feel that, you know, in all of the various ways that Solomon and the authors of the, of the wisdom literature describe what it means to be a foolish person. We all would have to raise our hands at some point and say, I'm a fool and I've been a fool and I'm gonna continue to be a fool. And so the wisdom literature often gives us this feeling of, of condemnation or guilt or shame. But in reality, I think that it's really filled with grace. You know, Solomon here is not writing theory. He's writing his experiences. He's writing what he's observed, but he's writing his experiences. And it's uh, most of the experiences that he's writing from or after he's failed at all of these things that he's talking about. He pursued all of the things that brought judgment. <laughs> he, he pursued things that destroyed his family. He pursued things that destroyed his kingdom. He, per, he pursued things that ultimately didn't make him happy. And he saw other people do the same thing. So here at the end of the life, he's at the end of his life, before he's dead, he's learned a few things. But he's experienced some evil days. And he's learned through, he's learned through it. He's learned through it. And I think that as we read Ecclesiastes, we need to read through the lens of that author. Not as a, a, a book of theories and here's what everybody should do and if you don't, you're not going to make it. You're never going to be happy. You can't be this way. It's, let, let's read it through the lens of the author, a man who experienced and had a lot of failures, and is pointing the way to overcome them. I think we need to read it through the lens that death is the finish line, not where I am at now. Not where I'm going to be in five years. Not where I'm going to be in ten. Not, not five years ago when I made some mistakes and really blew it. Death is the finish line, and until I get there, the potential for wisdom, the potential to fear God, the potential for happiness is there. And I think, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, we need to read it through the lens of the gospel. And the gospel says, if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. And as we've gone through this entire book of Ecclesiastes, what we've learned is that 
that happiness is a gift of God through the power of the Spirit. Happiness is a gift of God through the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit is available to anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ. And we need to read it through the lens of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. He came to conquer death. Death being our lives when they are full of evil. That's what Christ came to conquer. To provide abundant life. That's what Jesus said. I have come that you may have life and life abundant. That is exactly the idea that Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes is pressing us towards. And so Jesus came to die and then to raise from the dead for this very thing. Through the power of his blood, his, his, this life of wisdom, this life of happiness is possible. And so as we think through, in conclusion, these, these, you know, kind of these three audiences, first of all, the youth. Here's my challenge to the youth. From my own experience and from what I observe, okay, failures in my life, failures in other people's lives, and victories. As young people, we tend to be overconfident in our own perceptions, and the power of our emotions seem pretty overwhelming. We, we, we look lightly. Young, young people, those of us have been, that have been young, we, we disregard our authorities because they don't, we don't think that they understand us. And so we quickly, quickly disregard our authorities. But I also think part of it is due to the fact that experiencing God as an adult is a very different thing than experiencing God as a child. And as we transition into adulthood, there is a new knowledge of God that we need to have, that, that our childhood experiences certainly can inform and assist in. But there's a, there's a knowing God in adulthood that, that's beyond the innocency of childhood that, that's more mature. And until you experience that, um, I think that God is small and somewhat distant. That's just my opinion. And I think what I observe and what I've experienced and what I think you can see here in Ecclesiastes. So that's what I think the challenge of the youth is. Um, so that it, young men and women today, if you are not experiencing that deep-seated disposition of the soul that you could say is happiness, um, take a step back and look at your life and see, hey, what I'm doing is not working. That's the thing about wisdom. It works, and a lack of wisdom doesn't. There's either skillfulness in your life, or there's not. And that skillfulness is either producing happiness, or it's not. And if there's not happiness, then what you're doing is not working. Consider what, what Solomon is saying here. And then really work. Take seriously the anger that's present, Take seriously the anger that's present. Identify what it is that you're so angry at, and you're going to have to really deepen in your knowledge of God and of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we intentionally hold on to anger because it's what's giving us our, our source and sense of power, and if we give it up, we don't know where the power is going to come from to handle the pain and the suffering that we've, been, that we've experienced. That's where we need to step out in faith and say, okay, I know the anger is destroying me. I'm not sure that God can meet my needs, but I'm going to step out in faith and get to know some new things about my creator because what I'm doing isn't working. Parents, 
Second audience. Your children will have to go through a season where they develop their own sense of identity. They're going to have to break away from you and discover on their own who God has made them to be. Because only God is going to be able to fill them up and give them a sense of a connectedness with Him. He's the one that created them. You didn't, parents. He created them. They need to discover what that means for them, which means that in their pursuit of that, they're going to pursue some things that their eyes and their hearts desire, and they're going to learn. If they are good things, they're going to experience happiness. If they are not, they're going to experience some discipline and judgment. And that is a good thing because that is part of the training process. They will have every opportunity to acknowledge and experience their creator. And they're going to remember, they're going to remember your efforts, they're going to remember your modeling, they're going to remember your godliness. If you've worked hard at becoming, you know, being godly. But, but you know, and I think what they're also going to remember, and I think this is probably even more important than your godliness, if they see humility and repentance in you, if they see you failing, failing often, but yet coming to them and coming to each other as, as parents or to other adults in the church community, or maybe you need to show humility in the context of a work or school situation or professional environment or in your neighborhood. If, you're, if your children see you responding to failure in a way that demonstrates the gospel, that forgiveness is possible, that humility and gentleness and repentance are part of what it means to, f- to follow God, those are also going to be massive things that your kids learn from that help direct them to knowing their creator. Finally, in regard to all of us, I think a lot of us will look back on our youth or on our younger days. Maybe we're not so young to where it's not our youth. Maybe we're a little older and we're just looking back maybe to our 30s and 40s. I think we still see some things that we think, I blew it there. I blew it there. And because I blew it there, that is going to affect the rest of my future, and I'm never going to experience the fullness of God. I'm never going to be able to experience the happiness that was possible before I blew it back there. And that's just not the way to think about it. That's just not the way to think about it. It's not the vision of the text. Solomon doesn't ever present that idea. It's just a constant push Hey, when you see this, when you do this, when you observe this in yourself, when you observe this in others, when you've experienced this failure, when you've seen those people fail, when you've seen success, keep pushing towards knowing your creator, living in the fear of him, and finding delight in the things that God has given to you with joy and gratitude. Those things aren't far off. It's not the vision of the text. God's intent... It's, it's re- the more I, you know, we spent time on this, the more I think this is so important. Repeatedly it says that, the, that happiness is a gift from God according to his power. He empowers people through his spirit to experience happiness. And the, and the gospel doesn't say 
that only a little bit of the Holy Spirit is given to some people and a lot is given to others. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the full resources of heaven have been poured out through the Holy Spirit upon those who have believed in Jesus Christ. You don't have a less amount of the Holy Spirit because of certain mistakes you made in your youth or even in your not-so-young days. The full potential for the happiness and the fullness of God is there for us. I mean, if you think about David, what David did in sleeping with one of his men's wives and then killing the man to hide it, was, that was a capital offense. He deserved death. But he had the boldness in Psalm 51 to say, God, I want you to restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I want you to wash away all of my iniquity. I don't want to feel... He's basically saying, God, I do not want to feel bad about what I did anymore. That's David after adultery and murder. And it wasn't just murdering one person. A whole bunch of guys died there at the wall with Uriah. He murdered a lot of people. God, I don't even want to feel bad about that anymore. I mean, do we have the boldness and our knowledge of our Creator to go to God because we know His grace and His power so much where we can say, you know, God, I made some massive mistakes when I was young. And I've made some massive mistakes as an adult. I don't want to feel bad about them anymore. That's the kind of boldness we have to have with God. And Paul, Paul said, I am the worst of all sinners. Why? He was killing Christians. God has given us the gift by his power to experience happiness. And we have to let these ideas go that hold us back from it. Let me pray.